You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. We want to start a new little three-week sermon series this, this January. You guys ready to dive into something new? All right, we got a three-week series. We want to talk about guilt and shame and conviction. We've titled the series Friend or Foe because these are tricky things to talk about. Like, are they good things or are they bad things? Like, conviction, that's a good thing, right? But shame is a bad thing. And then, but, but then like guilt, like when I do something wrong, I should feel guilty, shouldn't I? Or shouldn't I? In G, like what? So there's all these weird ways to talk about it. And part of the reason why it's hard to talk about is because there are different ways to come at the topics of guilt and shame and conviction. Like you can come at them from a theological perspective, thinking about theology. You can come at these topics from a psychological perspective. Like one of, my, one of the greatest thinkers in my world, in my mind, uh, when it comes to shame and vulnerability is Brene Brown. Like fantastic. If you, if you are not reading Brene Brown, you are missing out. This brilliant PhD researcher on shame and vulnerability. Uh, love w- what she talks about. And yet I've discovered that when, when even Brene Brown, Dr. Brown will use um, different words uh, like guilt, uh, the nuances of how we're using the word are often different. And so I have to like stop for a moment and like, okay, what space am I in when we're having the conversation? And, and you may need to do those things too because we, we talk about guilt, shame, and conviction in secular spaces as well. So to talk about guilt, shame, and conviction in a secular space from a theological perspective would be really wacky. It would not be probably the best decision. It's not that there's a right or a wrong way, but to kind of give you a, a map, a roadmap of where we're gonna go here, we're gonna talk about it uh, today and the next couple weeks, um, shocker, from a theological perspective, Okay. If you guys are okay with that, that's how we're going to do that because that's kind of my job when I'm up here is to do theological perspective. Never mind. Okay, that joke was not flying, so we're just going to keep moving. So, so let me throw up these. Let's talk about these things in, kind of in order here real quick. Like, So guilt. Guilt for me from a theological, and there's still even multiple ways to talk about this theologically, but guilt for me, for the sake of our conversation today and maybe even the next couple of weeks, Josh may do something completely different, and that's totally okay. Um, but to start out today, guilt for me is about the reality. Guilt is the reality that we live in. We are guilty. Now, we often think in terms of legal, especially in our world, we think uh, legal terms, legal terminology, like God's big gavel, guilty. And that, okay, but I'm talking like bigger than that. Like we are not the people that we want to be. Like I am not the husband that I want to be. I actually have some really good days, but there are also other days and I'm not the husband that I wish I was. I'm not the father every single day that I wish I was every single moment. I fall short of whatever standards I want to use, whether they're my own standards, whether they're standards that other people project onto me, whether they're God's standards. I'm not the person that I want to be. Does anybody resonate with that? Yeah, this is not news, by the way. This is not news to anybody, even if you're not a believer. Like, I've never quite understood this Christian need to, like, come at people off the top rope as if we're, like, we have this new revelation Did you know you're a sinner? Yeah, everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. There's nobody making a legitimate argument, a legitimate respectable argument that they are perfect and flawless and without brokenness. Nobody is making that argument. Um, 
What they do push back against is this approach that we have that begins with step number one, you are an abomination. People are like, hey, who are you? (laughs) Hi, my name is Marty. Um, Let's start there. Like, if we were to come at the conversation more as a we rather than a you, like, we, we all understand this reality. We, we all fall short. Does that make sense? So on Thursday night, I was uh, listening to Darby's announcement, and I, I came up here, and I said, okay, I've been here for 10 years, and nobody, I, I have never encountered a huckleberry cheesecake. <laughs> 10 years. And somebody contacted, not me, but my wife, uh, and, and were let, like, let them know, I think it was the culprit. They felt guilty. You see, guilt. <laughs> guilt. Guilt is a reality. We all know what it's like. Guilt, guilt is just the truth of who we are and the fact that we, we fall short. We are less than. We call that word sin, by the way. That's, that's another word we use for our Guilt. Guilt and sin. The next, the, but the next thing, I, I also kind of like to view these things as stages, and maybe I'm making it too linear. But guilt is like where it all begins. And you can, while nobody denies guilt, you can run from it. It is possible to be like, and just try to like run away from this idea, like to just run from your mistakes. So if you can like acknowledge the guilt and embrace the fact that we are broken and we fall short. If you can do, the next stage that you kind of wrestle with is shame. Now shame is where you find your identity in your guilt. Shame is where you let yourself be defined by the mistakes. So guilt is the place where you say, I told a lie. Like I, I told a lie. Shame is where you say, I am a liar. Okay. The lie was like a, a portion, and maybe you have a problem lying. That's a portion of who you are. Like God also made you in his image. God also designed you with a giftedness that you're supposed to share with the world in a way, like you are, you are this whole big thing that God made you, and a part of you has, probably a whole bunch of parts of you have brokenness, and that guilt shows up, but you are much more than your guilt. Does that make sense? A person could commit adultery, shame says, I am an adulterer. Not in Christ, you're not. You're you're more than that. Now, if you can navigate that second portion, see, the second stage is where you find your, it's where you put your guilt in its proper place. If I don't navigate the shame, I end up being ashamed of myself. If I navigate that, then I end up putting my guilt in its proper place and I can move on to that next thing, which is conviction. Conviction is where, that's where the good stuff happens. That's where I start walking in a new way because I have been able to look at my guilt and acknowledge it, but not let it be my defining, not let my identity be hijacked. Shame, by the way, in my mind, I don't know what Josh will do next week, that's up to him, but shame in my mind is always anti-gospel. Shame is always wrong. Shame is a lie and a robber. It's trying to rob you of the truth and rob you of the conviction that God wants wants you to walk in. Guilt is very pro-gospel. Guilt is essential to the gospel. Shame is anti-gospel. You you tracking with me? Okay. 
Once you, if you navigate that, now I can look back and I'm no longer trapped by shame. I can acknowledge my guilt and I can now walk in conviction. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, by the way. We're told the Holy Spirit was sent to convict the world of their sin. What is that? Guilt. He was also going to lead us into all truth. I think that has to do with shame. Convict me of my sin, that's my guilt. Lead me into all truth would be the bigger truths that surround my guilt. And now I'm able to walk with his assistance in conviction. And he empowers me. This is where the transformation happens. Transformation doesn't happen back here. Transformation happens here as I walk in conviction. And again, maybe I've made that too linear and that's okay. Let's read some Bible because it's always better if Marty stops talking and God starts. So let's go to Isaiah. This is the prophet Isaiah towards the end of his prophecy. And he's crying out to God. The prophet is crying out to God about how he has hope in a better tomorrow. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when the fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard. The prophet says, God, I wish you would show up. Because when you show up, stuff happens. No ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right who remember your ways. The prophet says, I wish you would show up because things happen and you work on behalf of those who walk rightly. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us, who has become, all of us have become like one who is unclean. Our righteous acts are like filthy rags. The prophet says, the problem is, God, I, I wish you would show up because when you show up, things happen and you work on behalf of those who walk rightly. The problem is, is we don't walk rightly. Like the best we have to offer you is like filthy rags. The Hebrew there, it's been translated nicely into the English. The Hebrew there is menstrual cloth, all right? So, so the best we have to offer you is nothing. It's nothing. What is the prophet? And the prophet is using electric, poetic, hyperbole here to communicate like the deepest what is the prophet talking about guilt the prophet is acknowledging his guilt their guilt corporately the prophet's acknowledging being very real about the fact that they're guilty all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags we all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away no one calls on your name or strives to lay again it's hyperbolic Strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. You have given us over to our sins. Now watch where the prophet goes next. Yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter. So the prophet had no hesitation to say, we really have nothing to bring you. We're pretty guilty, and yet, literally is what he said, and yet, we are your kids, and you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. Like there's a, the prophet shifts from the reality of my guilt to where is he going to put his hope in where his identity truly lies and his identity does not lie in his guilt. Because the fact, yeah, somebody's listening, that's good. 
Because the fact that he is God's child is going to outdo whatever lack he has. We are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. So, so the prophet says, God, I want you to show up because when you show up, you work on behalf of your people, on behalf of those who walk rightly. The problem is, is we don't walk rightly. Here's our guilt. But we know that you are our father and we know how much you love us. Great is your faithfulness. I love all the stuff we looked at this morning in our worship set. Uh, the lamentation. <laughs> and the la- book of Lamentations is full of, you know why everything's falling apart around us? Because we're idiots. That's my paraphrase. Because we've walked away from the Lord. And, and, and Greg's absolutely right. In the middle of this chiastic book of Lamentations, the treasure buried right at the middle of the book. But great is your faithfulness. Because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. I I screw up all the time, but the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So should I be defined in my shame? No. Let's look at another. How about the famous Psalm of David uh, when when he's dealing with his sin? And just to remind us of the context, because I hate it when preachers are like, Psalm 51, we're going to look at Psalm 51 and like this trivial little passage about sin and repentance. Okay, this is David who committed adultery with Bathsheba and then put a hit job out on her husband. This is adultery and murder, which that's a whole other sermon for a whole other day. But I hate it when when preachers don't acknowledge like the context of the psalm we're reading, all right? But watch the the process that David is going through. This isn't just David like caught in a prayer. This is David writing a song. So this is, David has put some time into this. This isn't like flippantly coming off of David's lips. This is what he's ended up writing as he's tried to deal with his confession. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Has anybody ever felt like that? Anybody ever, I'm staring at my guilt and my sin is always before me. Nobody needs to remind me of the mistakes that I've made. I got it. Anybody ever been there? Yeah, three of us, excellent. (laughs) Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Here is David in his psalm, I am guilty. No ifs, ands, or buts, no qualifications. I have screwed up, I have sinned. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. Again, this is a song, this is poetry, this is art, This is hyperbole erupting from the mouth of David as he writes a song to express the angst and the pain. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Now watch what he does. Where is he going to shift? He's not going to put his, he's not going to let despair define him. He's going to put his hope somewhere. He's going to have to put his hope in who his, what his identity is. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Not I hope. I know who I am and I know who you are. And I know that even in spite of the mistakes that I've made, I know that you can cleanse me. Uh, By the way, this is not free of consequences. The consequences of our guilt are true no matter what. David has to deal, David has death. He loses a child. 
as the Bible tells it, as a consequence. Like this isn't like, like, oh, David just got forgiven for, we know this. We've walked these roads before. These stories are our stories. And in the midst of all of that struggle and pain, David still says, I'm gonna put my hope in who you are and who you say that I am. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. So here's somebody who can both acknowledge without qualification their guilt and still ask that God would fill their life with joy and gladness. Somebody who can admit and accept the consequences for what they've done and still say, I want to taste your salvation and redemption. Now watch. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Where did David just go next? Conviction. You tracking with me this morning? You guys are real quiet, okay? David starts with his guilt, moves, puts his hope in his identity, navigates away from shame, and then realizes that what that means is that there's a whole new day. I will be a new creation, By the way, I'm using Old Testament passages this morning because I want you to realize this isn't just a Jesus thing. This is what it means to be human. What Jesus does in the Holy Spirit and the power of the resurrection is Jesus takes this whole reality and blows it open and fills it with color. He turns this truth up to 11. Obscure movie reference number one. Does that make sense? Okay. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. I'm gonna walk in conviction Things are going to be different. Things are going to be somehow, we're going to start putting the world back together because I've walked through this path with you, God. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You, are, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Conviction. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And so when you read these passages, you can see this navigation of guilt and then shame and then conviction. Now I want to give you one more three-part diagram that's kind of unrelated, but we're going to relate it this morning. <laughs> so I want to give you one more diagram. I want to talk about wisdom. I want to talk wisdom. I want to talk about pre-conventional wisdom, conventional wisdom, and post-conventional wisdom. Pre-conventional wisdom, and let's, let's think in terms of like physical maturity, like growing up as a human being, right? Let's think, I think that helps us understand pre-conventional, conventional, and post-conventional wisdom. My, my son, my nine-year-old son, Ezekiel, he has at times, pre, probably most times as a nine-year-old, <laughs> pre-conventional wisdom. My son Ezekiel believes, dad, just give me all the screen time. All of it. Just let me have an iPad permanently fixed in front of my face. Let me watch YouTube for 20 hours of the day. Just give me all the screen time, Dad. Like, nobody's laughing at this, but <laughs> this is pre-conventional wisdom. It's foolishness. It's, it's immaturity, right? Does that make sense? 
So then there's conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom says, yeah, but Zeke, here's the problem. Like your brain is developing. And, and so you get to like your mid-20s, your brain is still like in this development process. And so the, what, we, what we know, like it's science, son. Like what we know is like more screen time starts to actually disrupt the, the development of your brain, it will stunt your, your, your brain development. Like you, you only at nine years old need to have between two to three hours of screen time. So you get two and a half hours of screen time every day. That's conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom is, well, it's not foolishness. It's, it's, it's just, here's what we know. And we're going to live according to conventional wisdom. Tracking with me. But then eventually my son gets to be 18 and he grows up and he has his, he takes his iPad with him. <laughs> And it probably doesn't happen when he's 18, but somewhere, hopefully in his mid to late 20s, or early 30s, or maybe, I don't know, maybe before he retires, <laughs> somewhere in that adult phase, we hope that we move into post-conventional wisdom, a wisdom that says, okay, I have a limited amount of screen time because that's what a healthy human being should have, but I want to ask the question of how I'm going to use it. I can have the whatever, four hours, five hours of screen time a day, but how am I going to use that? Just to self-indulge, just to like unplug and waste my time? Or am I going to use it for the good of myself, for the good of the relationships around me? How am I going to use that screen time? Are you tracking with me? There's pre-conventional foolishness. There is conventional just like, okay, but we're taking the facts and working with it. And then there's post-conventional, which is taking the facts and doing something productive with it doing something excellent. Okay, there's foolishness, there's conventional wisdom, and then there's actual wisdom. Wisdom. I bring this up because I think that this pre-conventional, conventional, and post-conventional wisdom has gotten into our theology when it comes to guilt, shame, and conviction. I feel like a lot of evangelicalism, a lot of the evangelical church has a pre-conventional theology that is just focused on our guilt. Did you know you're guilty? You're just a sinner, just a big old ball of sin. You're just a big old pile of sin. Just a big old, like if you were a container, you are overflowing with sinfulness. You are yuckiness. You are disgusting. Did you know how yucky and icky and gross and sinful and blasphemous you are? Like so much of evangelical theology starts in that place. It's pre-conventional theology. It's foolishness. It ignores so much of what the story of God tries to teach us from Genesis to Revelation. And yet because of our systematic theology, like that's what, like so many churches that I get to visit, there's always going to be the plug at the end of the sermon. Always. About how you know that you're a sinner and there will be the gospel presentation because it's apparently not all the gospel. And so somehow we'll be talking about this thing. Has anybody ever been to churches like this? Hopefully not here. But you'll be talking about this thing that has nothing to do with it, but somehow we're gonna swing it all the way around to your guilt and sinfulness. And you're like, whoa, what just happened? But so, so we've spent some time here for the last, like if you've been with Real Life for the last you know, handful of years or so, we've spent the last seven, eight, nine years trying to reclaim some of that narrative and try to maybe give us to a more conventional theology. Like a more whole, and we get accused of like not talking about sin. It's not that we don't talk about sin. I'm doing it today. <laughs> um, it's that we're trying to put sin in its proper place in the narrative. Like sin has to take its proper place in everything, in everything that God wants to talk about. 
Because God wants to talk about a lot of things, and one of them is our sin and how it, inf- how it impacts everything. But it needs to take its proper place in the larger theological conversation. And then at the end of that, the, the danger is, is that you get stuck right there. I, I think that's the danger for a fellowship like ours, is you get just enough tools, you get just enough training, you get just enough language that you get into this conventional theology, and then, and then you don't navigate to post-conventional theology, and what happens if you don't navigate that transition is it leads to self-righteousness. It leads to this like, well, you know, God loves me, and so, well, whatever. And if you navigate this, it leads to humility. If you navigate this transition, what it does is you're able to look back and go, I got some, I got some real problems. They're not going to define me. But I need to be real honest. I need to be real open about my guilt. If you don't navigate this, stuff gets hidden all the time. Stuff gets stuffed away in the corners. Because, because I, I, I can't walk into post-conventional theology. Watch this passage from Malachi, more Old Testament. You have wearied the Lord with your words. This is, this, is the, this is the prophet talking not to outsiders, not to sinners, to God's people, to the religious, to the folks that show up to church and worship. This is Malachi. You have wearied the Lord with your words. God is so tired of you. How have we wearied him, you ask? By the way, that's an indication that you have not navigated when you're like, oh, really, how? Always a bad posture. You may be dealing with self-righteousness when that's your response to the prophet saying, God is so tired of dealing with your church services. Oh, really, tell me why. I can just imagine this conversation going on on Facebook. <laughs> by saying all, listen, by saying all who do all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. By like not acknowledging where, where guilt is and what it looks like and where you find it. And, is, and, is he, and, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come in his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or launderer's soap. That sounds like fun. This, this transition from shame to conviction is not a fun one. It's not a comfortable one. It's launderer's soap. It's refiner's fire. Has anybody ever walked through that before? Where you have this painful... And I just think of my own journey and coming to grips with like my own narcissism and the consequences of that. And then having to figure out if I was just, am I now gonna be defined by my narcissism? Is my ministry worthless and pointless? Am I just a destructive leader? Still struggle with some of those questions. This is the, this is, and then God's saying, yeah, but you're not gonna be able to ignore it. We now need to start dealing with it. Ah, I don't wanna deal with it. I, I, I admitted it, I confessed it. Can't we just move on? no. Not if we're going to walk in conviction. You need to be honest about where it shows up and what you need to do about that part of your brokenness. He will set, sorry, he will uh, set as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And the Lord will have men who will bring offerings and righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come put, it, put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, 
says the Lord Almighty. This is the process that God invites us to work through. And just if I could give one more plug before we move towards the Lord's table. If you want to know a group of people that really understands this process, I've seen it all throughout my life and the relationships I've built with them. It's people who, have, who are in the process of recovery. Which, by the way, is all of us. We're all in the process of recovery. Some of us just haven't clued in yet. And there's like this other group of people that were like, well, those people. No, we're all, if we're, if, we're, if we're people that have surrendered to the gospel, we're all in recovery. What is your addiction? What is your habit? What is your hang up? But there's a whole group of people that have gotten into this because some of our addictions are so destructive that they've brought us to rock bottom. And so this, this group of people have shown up and the whole process starts by having to admit that there's a problem. That's guilt. The process starts there. And somehow this group of people has, has figured out, with the help of others, how not to be defined by their guilt. And somehow this group of people can say things like, hi, I'm Marty and I'm an alcoholic. And they, and they don't mean I'm defined by my addiction. What they mean is I'm acknowledging somehow they've navigated that anti-shame pro-gospel approach. And then now, with the help of others, because this isn't done alone ever, they're learning how to walk in conviction. Like if you want to see this on display, show up to celebrate recovery some week. You'll, you'll see a whole group of people navigating this process. And, th- and then there's a whole group of us that act like we have it all together. We're all in recovery. Does that make sense? Guilt, shame, conviction? I hope so, because I'm out of time. So here's what we want to do. We want to head towards the Lord's Supper this morning. So if our servers will go back and do that. If you're visiting with us this morning, we have an open table. What that means is if you want to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, uh, your family. So join us. Take some bread, take some juice, and just hold on to it. And we're going to take it together here in just a moment. As they pass that out, I want to walk through some questions. Some questions that can help us apply this. They can be questions for the drive home, questions for around the lunch table or the dinner table, questions for your prayer time and your prayer journal, questions for your home group and your new New Year's resolution as you eat Huckleberry Cheesecake. You know who you are. All right. First question, which wisdom description did you find described you the most? Pre-conventional, conventional, or post-conventional? And if it's helpful, think in terms of theology. Like, where is it that your theology sends you just kind of by default? Does it send you to the guilt bucket? Do you, do you find yourself struggling or having navigated the shame bucket? Or do you find that as you've looked back on your life, God's really led you to a place where you're walking in conviction. And, and the answer really is probably all three at different times. We, this is the spiritual experience. We find this true. So, yeah, Here, here's another way to word the same question. Do you find yourself preoccupied and identified by your guilt? Like, is that like your focus? Like, we've met these people, we all have like Christian friends where they can't talk about Jesus without like the, the disclaimer up front that they are the worst of all sinners. Like, oh, I'm just a sinner. Like, well, here's the thing. I'm a sinner saved by grace. But, and that's like the obsessive definition. Do you find yourself preoccupied and identified by your guilt? Do you find yourself victorious over your guilt? 
Do you, have you found that God saved you from your guilt? You used to be there, but God has taught you. You used to be full of shame, but God has taught you not to be, you're now, you're now, you have victory over that. Or do you find yourself now as blind to your guilt? I don't really talk about my guilt anymore. I don't have to. <laughs> I, I don't really like talking about my guilt. I don't, like what, which ones of those describe you the most? Here's another question. This one is the one that's getting me this week. Where are you paralyzed by guilt? Where are you paralyzed by guilt, directly or indirectly? Can I give you an example that we never talk about in church? <laughs> what, what, about, what about the whole uh, internet pornography thing? And the room falls deathly silent. What about that? What about that? And it's not, I mean, statistics are telling us it's not even about gender anymore. Like we used to just talk about the men, the men and those internet connections. And we're finding out that that's really not even accurate. And, and the fact that if we're, if we're a human being that has a, a sexual pulse and an internet connection, that's a struggle. It's a battle. We fight it. We fight it all the time, myself included. We fight that battle all the time. How much, how, do not raise your hand. Do not raise your hand. This is a rhetorical question. But, but how much guilt is in the room I don't know what it is, last year, last month, last week, this morning. Like, I don't, how much guilt is there in the room? Now, now, here's what I'm really driving at. How much shame is in the room because of that? How many, especially, listen, I'm in campus ministry. Do you want to know how many college students in their early to mid-20s are defined by their porn addiction? They're like fixated on it. It is the most obsessive thing. And they're going to, how many people have been here? I am going to kick this internet addiction that I have. How does that work out for us? It doesn't. That's not how it works. It's not how the guilt-shame train works. We have to let ourselves be defined by something better, like the resurrection of Jesus. And then those dark places start to have light shown in and they start to get filled. And somewhere in there, I can start walking in conviction. And it doesn't mean I have victory and never struggle anymore. It means I can look back and put everything in its proper place. I can remember being a pastor at 22 years old, having a serious problem with this, and it destroyed all spiritual growth. And I was preaching on Sunday. Where are you paralyzed? I was paralyzed. By guilt. Is there a chance that there is guilt hiding in places where you find the most confidence? Like ask yourself, like where am I, like what are my greatest gifts? The part that makes me put on my cape with a big capital letter on my chest and go do do do. Where is there guilt hiding in that place? And you, and you, 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 it's actually blatant, you know it, but because of this overconfidence, there's guilt hiding in some corner somewhere. Here, here's, the, here's the beauty of this thing that we do. We, we were given a weekly opportunity to deal with this reality. I grew up in a, in a tradition that took communion once every quarter, uh, which did something. I mean, that, that, was, that was cool. There was good reason for that. They, they accused this tradition of taking this too flippantly. We take it every single week and we just kind of like, blah, blah, blah which is a, a good, honest critique. We ought to wrestle with that, and I have been guilty of that very much so. But I'll tell you what, I love taking the bread and the juice every single week because I haven't had a week yet where I don't need to sit down with Jesus and let him talk to me about my guilt. I don't have a week yet where shame hasn't been trying to creep in and define 
And there have been lots of weeks, not every single week, but there have been weeks where my time at this table has led me to walk out of this place in conviction with a new commitment, with something new. It's a beautiful opportunity that we get every single week to deal with our guilt, to acknowledge our guilt, to deal with our shame, and to walk in conviction. That night, Jesus took a piece of bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body given for you. Whenever you do this, remember. Let's remember Jesus. Later in the meal, Jesus took a cup. He passed amongst his disciples. He said, this is my blood of the covenant. Whenever you do this, remember. Let's remember Jesus. Father God, we come to you today, this morning, And the first thing we do is we acknowledge if we are willing. We acknowledge together our guilt. We we are guilty. We're guilty of participating in the order of death. We have participated in ways that are destructive to ourselves and to other people. We have rebelled against your order of life and of light and of love and of forgiveness. But God, it's also your forgiveness that leads us into the ability to find our identity in the proper place, despite despite our laundry list of rebellion and our long list of sins. They are no match for your love and the power of the cross and an empty tomb. And so we put our hope in that reality. And God, our prayer is that we would eventually find ourselves in a place where we could invite you into the work of conviction in our life, knowing that it's not going to be easy, knowing that at times, especially for those of us who are religious, for those of us that have been in your group of religious folks for a long time, it is like launderer's soap, it is like a refiner's fire. But we invite you to do that process in us because we know that a redeemed world somehow starts with redeemed people like us. So we love you. We thank you for your steadfast love that never ceases. We come to the altar now, knowing that forgiveness has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.